HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the Heritage Meat Shop, located in the historic Essex Street Market in New York City. For more information, visit heritagemeatshop.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Did you know that during the 20s and 30s, many New Yorkers paid a gangster tax on basic goods like bread, milk, meat, fruits, and vegetables? Hmm. We're going to learn all about it today when we come back on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And, you know, when we think of racketeering and and all the gangsters in the Roaring Twenties, Illegal booze is usually what we think of, the bootlegging and, and um, you know, the, the Al Capone-type characters. But the rackets extended much further than most of us realize. And I have with me today Andy Coe, and Andy is uh, an independent scholar and an author and historian. He's written the story of Chop Suey, a cultural history of Chinese food in, in the United States, and in Gastronomica a few years back, he wrote an article called The Egg Cream Rackets. Well, now this led to a lot of other information he uncovered, and that's on the rackets involving food, primarily in New York City altogether. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Linda. So rackets, racketeering in the food. Well, I mean, you know, it's not – I can understand that, yeah, somebody's – you know, somebody's – Home in on my butter and egg route, and I'm going to try to force them out. But we're talking about something a lot bigger than than uh, than mere strong arm tactics, right? I mean, these were um, organized criminal businesses um, whose purpose was to take control of some of the um, most basic edible commodities in New York City. Where I mean, we're talking milk and flour and things like that, and um, make huge amounts of money off of them. Well, you just just to sort of illustrate 
for people how far-reaching this was. The article you wrote in Gastronomica, I think 2004 it was, right? I've got it right here in front of me, in fact. Um, <laughs> it was on egg creams. Uh, well, first of all, you, you sort of trace the history of the egg cream. What is the egg cream? But And then how it kind of dissolved for a while into this, in, in the rackets, the food rackets really played large in the egg creams. Tell me a little bit about the background of egg creams. Well, I mean, some people would call um, egg creams uh, one of the most basic um, food groups um, <laughs> in New York. And certainly in, in the 19, from the 1920s on, um, egg creams were, were, were part of uh, the New York diet. And just for anybody who doesn't know out there, egg creams are a soda fountain concoction made from milk, chocolate syrup, and seltzer water. No eggs, no cream. <laughs> yes, no eggs and no cream. And um, they were particularly popular in um, neighborhoods which were, were heavily um, populated with immigrants, um, like the Lower East Side and, and you know, districts like that in, in Brooklyn and uh, other parts of New York City. And um, they were sold in neighborhood candy stores. And neighborhood candy stores were everywhere in New York City. So if you had, let's say, 10 or 15,000 neighborhood candy stores in New York City, every one of them with a little soda fountain in the back selling egg creams and other concoctions, well, that adds up. I mean, you know, you're talking, let's say, a nickel or a dime um, at a, at, for, for an egg cream. Well, those nickels and dimes add up, um, and they can add up into thousands, maybe even, um, you know, when, after a while, into millions of dollars. Um, and in 1929, a guy named Harry Solomon Dolowich um, decided to cash in on egg creams and o other soda fountain drinks. And he organized a racket to take control of the industry. So all these little small – and it was, it, it was syrup. Did he start out primarily with the syrup that was used in the egg creams? Yeah. Well, I mean um, there was actually – there were other ra um, gangsters who, who were trying to take over um, seltzer water. <laughs> And um, and another gangster who who was who was had taken over the milk um, industry, um, but you know in soda fountains syrup are, are syrups are the crucial ingredient, hmm. um, and so what he did was he um, he had actually grown up on, on the Lower East Side, the son of Jewish immigrants, and he'd married the daughter of one of the big syrup manufacturers, and um, Harry Dolowich, um, what he did was he got he. Um, he, he talked to all the big syrup manufacturers and convinced them to form an association, um, the New York Syrup Manufacturers Association. And um, what that, that association did was that it set the price of syrup at a fairly high level. And um, anybody who didn't join the association, um, they would try to destroy. And so the big manufacturers, and by the way, that includes H. Fox and Sons, the manufacturers of Fox's You Bet. You Bet syrup, which, right, chocolate yeah, syrup. Yes, which is like now considered the only chocolate syrup you can use for egg creams. Um, they all went along um, because this would cut out the competition and it would also um, keep prices artificially high. And by cutting out the competition, it wasn't done in any kind of innocent fashion or you know, just by like good, clean business practices. Um, they would like, uh, you know, uh, go. They had what they called dead wagons, which would follow the um, delivery vans of the uh, the small mom and pop syrup manufacturers, slash the tires, um, um, 
put it foreign substances into their syrup oh. and like badmouth them to 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 the syrup stores and um and people got ruined and this was you know the early years of the, the great depression and um people were very afraid of like ending up on the street at that time and these were you know small artisanal syrup producers and um it was very harsh yeah something we can really relate to today because you know there's there's that new boom of, of artisan today. There's a new boom of all kinds of art, even syrup, soda syrup makers, artisanal makers. And so you can see where this would be, how this would hurt somebody. All right. Well, this extended far beyond egg creams. It's a, that's a fun story. Though. I, I, that's, that's really not a fun story. It was a disastrous story, but I mean, it really, it really paints a picture of what was going on on a, on that scale as far as rackets, but it extended far further than just syrup and seltzer. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing to understand about the the about the food rackets and why they flourished during this time is to understand, get a picture of um, how food was distributed in New York City, because it's very very different from today. I mean, today we have supermarkets and bodegas, and the food just kind of appears on the uh, the on shelves, the and we really don't know where it comes from. You know, we're sure they're delivery trucks; we see them driving around, but we don't know you know where the food comes from. The wholesale markets are essentially invisible. Um, and, um, so, but back then everything was, um, the, the food industry was a lot bigger, uh, was a lot more wide, was a more, lot more, excuse me, a lot more spread out and a lot more complicated than it, than it was today. Um, food came into to New York city by either by rail or by boat, occasionally by truck. Um, it ended up, it landed at the piers or at the, at the, um, the, the at the, um, 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 rail terminals. It was, from there, it was brought to these giant wholesale markets, like the uh, Washington Market at the site of the World Trade Center was one of them, or the Fulton Market, the Fulton Fish Market on the east side. Um, and then it was there; it was sold, like went through, passed through a, a number of hands, from the big commission mer- merchants who were like the big dealers in wholesale goods, to dozens of different kinds of um, small small time jobbers who brought the foods from the wholesale markets. Um, through the streets of New York to the individual stores. And, um, you know, at certain times of the day, the streets of New York were crammed with all kinds of delivery vans um, from, and, and, you know, everything from like um, horse-drawn, you know, uh, farmer's wagons to big trucks delivering food. So it was like spread out all over the place with lots and lots of different levels and kinds of food distribution. And it was um, very sort of disorganized and um, and it gave criminals a great opportunity um, to to become involved and make a buck. Hmm. Well, yeah, it's, I, you um, in the movies we still see you know images of let's say even in the Sopranos of them hijacking a you know a cigarette truck you know and then then taking all the cigarettes and selling them you know bootlegging the, you know the cigarettes. So this was this is nothing new. This was going on then, right? No, it was absolutely nothing new and um I mean you know people were I mean people this was much more like a uh, kind of like evolution you know in the raw. I mean it was it was like um, people were struggling to survive even before the depression. People were struggling and um living and working in 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 the New York City food industry was like a constant battle every day of just struggling for space, struggle, you know, from the parking space to to um, customers or to whatever. Everybody was was constantly sort of at each other's throats trying to to make a make a dollar to make a living in New York. Well, now setting prices there. This was, I mean, this is not this is a, this is not a small thing. Setting a price 
we read about this all the time with the milk industry, particularly, you know, when, when the dairy farmers suffering with the, you know, the prices for whatever reasons are set too low or, you know, too high. Um, so organized crime was really the one who was had a, a big hand once they got in and controlled these illegal – had these illegal monopolies, in other words, on, on the food industry. They set the price, Right. Right. Um, and, and, and it's let's I think what let's start with like the the sort of first food racket, which uh, as an illustration of how they worked, um, the big the first food racket was actually one of the biggest. Um, it was one of, in one of the f- biggest food industries in New York. And you might be surprised to hear what it was. Kosher poultry. Huh. Kosher chicken was huge um, because Jewish immigrants and the children of Jewish immigrants Need, needed fresh killed um, chicken for their Friday evening meal. And um, there were a lot of Jewish immigrants in New York City. It was like the largest Jewish city in the world, essentially. And um, thousands and thousands of birds got uh, sold every week. And this added up to literally millions of dollars a year in sales. So and the kosher poultry industry was um, based in the West Washington market, which is at the site, more or less, of uh, today's meatpacking district. Mm-hmm. And they had something called Chicken City or Chicken Village, which was a, a series of buildings which uh, must have smelled terribly oh, yeah. um, if you've ever been to a chicken farm. And the noise must have been incredible as well. And um, around 1910, there were a bunch of dealers, um, wholesale live chicken dealers, um, who got very angry at one of their um, um, competitors, a guy named Barney Baff. And Barney Baff, rather than join them and keep the uh, prices of chickens relatively high, um, like they were wanted to do, um, he was undercutting them in the market, and they didn't like it. And so they formed an association of, chick- of, New- of the uh, New York City chi- uh, chicken merchants, and this association first tried to convincing him not to, uh, to undercut them in prices. And when that didn't work, they poisoned his horses. They slashed the tires of his delivery vehicles. They bombed his house. Huh. And still that didn't work. So what they did was this association of largely Jewish chicken merchants is uh, that they, they – uh, one of them knew a guy in Spanish – in East Harlem – and the guy in East Harlem knew somebody else who was like an Italian immigrant um, guy who was semi-criminal. And they gave him a gun and sent him down to Chicken Village. And a guy named um, Chicken Mo pointed out Barney Baff and said, that's the guy. And this young Italian immigrant shot him and killed him right there on, uh, in, in Chicken Village. And this turned into a huge, huge scandal. Um, in the uh, in the 19 teens, and um, you know, and eventually the people who were involved were arrested and convicted. But guess what? Within a few years, all of them had been released, even the people who had been convicted of murder, um, because this is you know this is a, this was a very different era in New York City, and corruption was everywhere. Right. Well, and well, I mean, we all have read the history books about Tammany Hall and 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 the corrupt politicians. I would imagine that they, a lot of the politicians didn't, or even um, you know, judges or, or district attorneys, didn't want to handle these cases. Well, I, I don't think that they didn't want to handle the cases, but they were, I mean, they didn't, they were being paid off. They were on the take, too. They were on the take. Yeah. And so they just, you know, they would 
they had to do one thing for because the, all the newspapers were getting down on them for for you know not going after these guys. But then, like you know, after the things had, had calmed down, then they oh they found like a little problem with the indictment or something like that, and they managed to get him out. Yeah. Well, um, so they were back on the street and actually back in the in the kosher poultry racket um, within a few years. Hmm. Interesting. It and and you said they bombed the guy's house. So we were we're talking about we're talking about some drastic tactics that were used um you know killing bombs and and murder inc what's tell us about what's murder what did murder inc come well in? murder incorporated um this was um a uh, a criminal organization which wasn't just limited to the um the food rackets um what it was was uh, in in the 1930s um a bunch of people in jewish and italian organized crime decided that it would be much more efficient um, to have a special team of people to dispatch enemies, i.e. kill them, um, rather than have people within your own organization do it. You could just, like, call up Murder Incorporated (laughs) and have a specialist do the work um, rather than have somebody who wasn't perhaps quite as professional. Um, And the head of Murder Incorporated was a guy named Lepke Buchalter, um, who was a short gentleman who'd grown up on the Lower East Side um, and had grown up with Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, and Lucky Luciano, people who, who are you well-known, know, very names. Well-known, <laughs> well-known names in, in the criminal side of life. And um, um, Lepke began his career as a st- strong-arm guy. Uh, they called him a gorilla. And um, he... Uh, First made his name in 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 the in, in union rackets, busting garment workers unions, and also in the food rackets. And um, the big food racket that he was involved in was uh, the flour racket. Uh, you know, bread was one of the basic foodstuffs in New York City during the 1920s and 1930s, and um, he managed to take control of the flour industry. Hmm. So from the from the delivery of the grain to the mills to the uh, how far back how far reaching was it? Well, you to take control of the industry, you don't have to take control of every step of it. Um, you only have to take control of a crucial step of it because if you can hold up one step along the distribution line, then the whole thing falls apart. You affect, you affect the final outcome and the price, right? So. Right, and the the step, the crucial step, which he took control of, was um, flour truckmen, people who delivered the flour. Because if the bakeries couldn't get the flour, they couldn't make the bread. Right, and so he controlled the flour truckmen, and that means that the bakeries had to pay him off <laughs> um, in order to get their flour delivered. And anybody who crossed him um, was, uh, you know, was beaten or murdered. Um, there was a guy who was a, um, uh, a, the, uh, a, a union leader in a, in a rival flour trucking uh, union, and he didn't want to go, ahead, go along with, with Lepka and his plans. And they said, well, why don't you come down and meet us at a restaurant? We'll discuss this. And it was Garfine's um, Kosher Banquet Hall um, in, on the Lower East Side on Houston Street. And um, it happened to be empty at the time. And there was like a corner table with one light on t- over it. Oh, this is, this is a movie. <laughs> and, yes. And, um, and uh, they all were gathered around the table. And, and this man, William Snyder, the, the union leader, came in. And the last seat which was available was the one with his back to the door. Mm-hmm. 
And they started, came in and they started talking. And, um, you know, a signal was, I think a blind was raised and then lowered. <laughs> and a, a young man came in from the street um, with a gun to his side and, and um, shot Mr. Schneider and murdered him. Hmm. Well, the Godfather. We know where they got their source material. Now. Yes, yes. Well, we're gonna we're gonna find out a little bit about the Crime Busters when we come back after this short break. You're listening to Penny by Snowmine on the Heritage Radio Network. Org. is a message from the Heritage Meat Shop. Are you tired of just hearing buzzwords? Do you want to actually take part in the food revolution? Then come on down to the Heritage Meat Shop, located in New York's historic Essex Street Market. On the corner of Essex and Delancey, we have rare breed pork, beef, poultry, lamb, and goat. Not to mention charcuterie that'll make you squeal. All raised right, by the right people, so you know they'll taste right. Try the meat that over 100 New York chefs ache for. Come to the Heritage Meat Shop and pick up some revolution today. For more information, visit heritagemeatshop.com. Hey, we are back here on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Andy Coe. We're talking about the rise of the illegal food rackets. Well, a racket is illegal, but a rise of the food rackets um, in New York City. And, Andy, I have a question. Did did the food rackets, I would imagine this... Um, there were food rackets in major cities like Chicago and and San Francisco. Chicago definitely. Um, I don't know about San Francisco, but Chicago actually um, um, definitely had food, uh, food rackets. In uh-huh. fact, they coined the term racketeering in Chicago. Right, right. I, that I, I actually had read that and recall that. So that's not just New York City that's so corrupt. But yeah, I mean, you get that many people together, and something's going to happen. About how how long did these the the food rackets endure? How I mean, how how long did that go on? We talked about the teens and the 20s. Um, how, how long did it go on? Well, um, the first food racket um, w- that I was able to find was the poultry racket, which started around 1910. Um, and they lasted into the 1930s. And, um, you know, dur- and actually during the 1930s, um, they really became, in the early 1930s, they kind of like turned up the volume on the food rackets. The criminals did. Um, because, you know, this was the, the early years and the worst years of the Great Depression. And um, I think racketeers, A, knew that prohibition was ending, 
and that they're you know that was the big cash cow for them. So they were looking for other other businesses to get involved uh, in. I uh-huh. mean, gambling was one of, one of them, but but you know, food certainly um, added, added to their profits. Um, and also, you know, the business owners who were like colluding with the food racketeers were also really struggling to survive. And this is one of the ways which they could like you know you know survive was was to to band together and and essentially you know beat and kill their competition. So you know that was like a you know the, the racketeers and and the manufacturers um, had a kind of partnership there, but you know, this was the depression. And um, in New York City um, in 1935, Fiorello LaGuardia became mayor, mm-hmm. and um, before him it had been uh, Jimmy Walker, and then a, a short-lived mayor, um, you know, in the interim. But you know, corruption was everywhere, and LaGuardia came in determined to clean up shop. And one of the first things he did was go um, go against one of the rackets we haven't talked about, which was the Italian artichoke racket. Um, and there's a big racket in the Italian artichoke. Who ar- would have guessed Italian artichokes? Well, I mean, you know, we don't want to say anything against Italians, and especially since I married a lovely Italian man. Um, but, Ita- but importing the Italian artichokes, tell me about that. Well, um, Ita- um, let's see how to, how to start. Artichokes have been grown in, in the United States for, for you know, decades and centuries. Um, but Italians like different artichokes mm-hmm. than the big globe, French-style globe artichokes that, that we, we knew. Um, they like smaller, more delicately flavored Italian artichokes. And even if they were poor immigrants, you know, on the big feast days and things like that, they wanted food from Italy. Um, they wanted imported spaghetti. They wanted imported olive oil. And they wanted good imported Italian small artichokes. So there was a business here. And um, and a guy named um, Joe Morello, a.k.a. Clutch Hand, because he had a deformed hand, um, was a, he was a gangster in the early version of the mafia. And he told them, um, the artichoke uh, dealers, every, on every case of uh, artichokes that you sell, you have to give me a cut or else. And um, his stepbrother, a guy named Ciro Ter- Terranova, um, eventually took over the artichoke racket and became known as the artichoke king. And he made so much money from artichokes that he drove around um, the drove around the streets of New York in an armored car. Hmm. Um, so it was big business. And um, LaGuardia, you know, he's he was he's half Italian American. The other half, I think, was Jewish. But um, he was very sensitive to crime in, in the Italian uh, in, in the Italian immigrant population. And he was really this really sort of he felt insulted by the, the artichoke racketeers. And he went into the markets and. Um, what he did was was close down. Um, I think one one of the old East Harlem markets, where where the uh, which was big in the artichoke racket, and built a new market structure and told everybody that um, that all the dealers is that they had to like reapply um, for their market um, permits um, in order to join and sell artichokes there. And he actually for a while he actually banned the sale of artichokes in New York City until he could clean this up. Interesting. Well, I mean the docks have have been known. Always for being ripe with with um, corruption yes. and a lot of criminals hanging out there. So obviously, you know, any food coming in and out of of ports was uh, was a target. Well, I mean, this is interesting, actually. The docks. This is really before re- refrigeration was widespread. Mm. So food would come in to, on boats, and um, it had to be like moved very quickly from from the docks to the markets to the stores. 
But if somebody said, like a uh, dock workers union said, well, we're not going to unload your your bananas or or, your, or whatever um, unless you give us a payoff. You well, the bananas <laughs> would rot in the hold. Right. And so that's I mean, that was very, very common in on the docks at, at that time. Wow. Yeah. So LaGuardia, this was um, in the mid late 30s when. Mm-hmm. Well, it was 1934, 1935 yeah, yeah. When, when, um, he started to sing, but he was only a mayor. I mean, you know, a mayor only has, you know, he's not a prosecutor or a judge or anything like that. And, um, the people, um, you know, the people who ran, um, you know, um, the governor's office at upstate, people up in Albany had, you know, for, for centuries essentially had always been sort of like tired of like corruption and criminality in New York City and trying to clean up New York City. And they hired um, a guy, a federal prosecutor named Thomas Dewey, to clean up crime and racketeering in Manhattan. And he went after all the big rackets. He went after um, the guy named Arthur Tootsie Herbert, who took over the poultry racket. He re- went after um, Alepte, Lepke Bocalter um, and the flower racket. And he was actually quite successful. Interesting. So when we buy our food today... Are we? Do we have any assurances that it is it is corruption free? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's different types of corruption, I guess. Yes, there's different types of <laughs> corruption, but the food distribution system is very different. But that said, you know, um, one of the big rackets which we haven't talked about was the the fish racket in the Fulton Fish Market, mm, yeah. which was um, begun by a guy named Joseph Sox Lanza. You know, Sox because you know well, you can imagine why he was called Sox. And um, corruption in the Fulton fish market didn't really end until 2005 when um, Giuliani um, finally forced the Fulton fish market to move up to Hunts Point. That's right. Closed And he – everybody, all the old fish dealers, um, to, in order to work at Hunts Point, had to reapply for their permits. And they had to – and actually the market was run by the, the, uh, the federal government for a number of years and may still be um, just to make sure that everything is squeaky clean up there. Hmm. So taking a, a page from La, uh, LaGuardia's book, he, he just basically closed down Fulton Fish Market. I mean, moved it, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. You know, it's – I know a lot of times um, today rather than racketeering, there there are ways to get around monopolies and with the patents that are, you know occur on, let's say, ice cream – an artisanal ice cream maker wants to get on the shelves of a big supermarket, but a big dairy company doesn't want the competition, so they will basically buy them out and then just put them on the shelf and hold and not and not put them on the shelf, but I mean squelch them, not even bring them to market. I mean, there are still practices that go on, um, but it's not. I, I you can't call it organized crime for sure. No, but I mean. Businesses still practice what I would consider as cutthroat business crack practices. They're not illegal, but um, they're definitely meant to undercut the competition. And um, and sometimes, and a lot of times, these are you know small artisanal um, producers. I mean, I can mm-hmm. you know I know I write a lot about the bread industry in New York, and I won't name names, but there was a small um, producer of really good, still is a, of really good um, Scandinavian style rye bread. And there was a big uh, market chain in New York, and for a while, the uh, market chain um, was uh, buying this this uh, rye bread um, and selling it, and it was and it was great. And I went used to go there and buy it. But then the market chain opened its own bakery and started producing its own version of rye bread, which was vastly inferior, but it was undercutting 
um, you know, was obviously a copy of this great rye bread, and it was undercutting their market. Hmm. So, I mean, that's that's what goes still still today. I mean, you know, business is is it's very competitive. There's a way, and the more more laws and rules we have on the books, the more educated people will become and find ways around it. You know, they're going to do things to to you know climb over other people's backs and and succeed in business. But the artisanal growers and 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 producers, I think, are have a much easier time of it today. I would imagine. Right, but if you actually look though. Over time, at things from you know the counter in your your local gourmet store or in the supermarket shelf, I mean, if you study these things over time, you realize that there's a slow motion battle going on there for shelf space. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the most precious commodity that, in the food industry. You're absolutely right. And shelf space. The, and this thing, I mean, it's you know people are fighting for shelf space, and and um, people, you know, you know, lives, you know, people's livelihoods are are made and ruined. Um, f- by getting gaining shell space or losing it, and that's really what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. There's a young woman was a, a soda producer in Brooklyn, and it took her, I think it took her easily about eight to ten years to get her soda on the shelves of even small small markets. You know, forget the big supermarkets. I don't know if they, you know, if she ever got on there, but you know, just determination, and she kept at it. And I'm glad you mentioned your good bread um, article because I forgot to mention it. Andy writes a, a column for SeriousEats.com called Good Bread. So you can read some of these interesting tales on, on your good bread. Mostly all about bread, I would imagine. Yes, but, all about great bakeries around yeah. New York City. Well, I know there are so many other interesting stories that we could uncover on the history of New York and obviously the, the food rackets. But this has been a nice stepping stone for an education on on how far we've come and what a you know a much more pleasant world it is now to yes. go to the markets and, and buy what food. our ancestors were up to back then that's you know, for you know. sure that's for yeah. sure well andy thank you so much and listeners i want to remind you that heritageradionetwork.org is a member supported network so please if you go to our website and you see the donate page Click it and look at your options. It's easy to join, and we really do need, do need your help so we can hear more of these wonderful tales from our guests. Hope you'll join me again on A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>